Before we turn away from those, you know, sometimes we sing the songs and then we just leave them behind. Uh, but there's some fascinating understanding, some fascinating statements in these songs. In that one, for example, the line that springs out to me every time I sing that hymn, 336, is, He owns me for his child. Isn't that just beautiful? He owns me for his child. Nothing's going to change that. He owns me for his child. And then when we we sang uh, Amazing Grace 152, if you want to flip back to that, I'm always um, taken by verse 2. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. And sometimes we, we see grace very simplistically. We, uh, we see it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And it is oh so much more than that. Um, that grace has been operating in your life and my life since before we were born. It's not something that came upon us um, when we when we were when we believed it is something that's been operating in our lives from before we were born and so it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved grace does not always bring us um, the joy of the moment sometimes it hurts um, and through many dangers toils and snares I have already come And those dangers, toils and snares are part of God's grace to us too. It's not just the happy moments that are God's grace to us. It is all that he brings to our lives. Nothing that he brings to our lives is purposeless. And we need to to keep these thoughts in our head, otherwise... Um, we fall into thinking, um, you know, grace is simply um, when good things happen. Well, it is in a sense, but sometimes those those things don't look good to us, right? So where are we? Um, We're in week four of five. Um, In week one, just to recap, this is what teachers do. (laughs) We talked about how the glory of God is paramount, that God does everything for his own glory. And we talked about how, what is the glory of God? Well, it's all that he is. It is all his righteousness and all his wonder and all his majesty and all his purity um, and how, how different that is from us as sinful people, people who have rebelled against that glory and that righteousness. And we looked at how in the scriptures, therefore, when people see God or come close to God, the response is one of awe and falling down and being overwhelmed. Uh, and And it means the glory of God is so different from the sinfulness of us human beings that there seems to be an unbridgeable gap. But the good thing about that is if, if God is so glorious and God is our Father, how wonderful is it that we have a Father who is all righteousness, all purity, all holiness, all goodness, 
Um, and how super that is that the, this king of glory oversees a kingdom that we are a part of. And as we said before, who would want to, to have a king who was unjust, who was immoral, who was impure? And so what a fabulous thing it is. And then we, we saw how in order for that gap to be bridged, in order for us to come close to that God of all glory, uh, we need the incarnate Christ. The, the Christ who becomes human and becomes a connection between us and God. And we talked about the union we have with Christ, that Christ, uh, that uh, after the Gospels, uh, we no longer talk about following Christ. It's not uh, a physical thing that we do. It is that Christ is now in us, and we are in Christ. And that's the connection, um, and what a beautiful thing that is. And then last week we talked about, but naturally, by ourselves, we don't seek Christ. Uh, it's not, we, we're, we're proud, arrogant, sinful people who think we know it all. So we don't seek Christ. And so we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, enable us to be able to see the truth of who Christ is as he shows us the glory of God the Father. Just a, nobody can make this up, could they? <laughs> it's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant story, isn't it? And so when we talked about the Holy Spirit um, um, and how he brings us to know Christ, it's not a one-off thing. It's not a brings us into salvation and he says, okay, I'll move on to the next person and do the same for them. It is a constant daily thing that that the Spirit of God is opening our eyes to the truth of who Christ is and the glory of God. Um, and so today, what we want to look at, um, and that I'm not quite sure whether we'll do this successfully, is how um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit bring grace to our lives, and without that, our lives are actually hopeless. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you take the initiative in everything, that you, uh, you want us to be part of your family, part of your kingdom. And in order for that to happen, uh, you redeem us. You show us the truth of who you are. Um, you forgive us through the actions of your Son. And you shine light on the truth by your Spirit. So, Lord, as we talk together this morning, I pray that uh, we will see the truth of your word and we will know of our relationship with you that is so precious and good and wonderful. So, Lord, thank you for our time together. Um, enlighten us, uh, change our thinking, change our hearts, change our lives. Um, do what you will with us this morning because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there are loads of ways we could look at the grace of God, but there's probably four things I want to try and cover today, and there's going to be quite a few little swags of, of Bible reading in there, but that's good. That's what we're here for, right? Um, and fundamentally, the four points I want to look at is the, the first thing is that 
grace is redemptive. Um, grace redeems the past um, and all of us have a past that there are many things that we would not be proud of. Um, that grace redeems our dismal failures and I think we understand that. But we need to understand that grace also redeems our proud successes. And that's the story of Paul's life, really, um, that he was redeemed from his own success. Um, The second thing is that grace determines uh, our identity and our meaning and our purpose. And if you were here in uh, the first or second week, we talked about those are the, the critical needs of every human being. What is my identity? What is the meaning of the life that I lead? And what is my purpose? What am I meant to do? How am I meant to live? And grace determines that for us. Uh, the third thing is that grace enables um, discipline and commitment and service and effort and excellence. There's a lot of people who think, you know, oh, just grace, doesn't matter what I do. No, grace is empowering Um, grace causes us to live in a totally different way and we engage with that and it does require our perseverance and our effort Um, not that that perseverance or effort earns us salvation but it's a consequence of God's grace in our lives that we will live um, faithfully and, and with energy and effort and lastly, to look at how, very quickly, how, how race, grace enables us to fight sin. Um, that we're not just um, people who say, oh, well, you know, grace will deal with that, but enables us to fight sin, to, to deal with it in our own lives. Um, so, the, the grace of the triune God redeems the past, Um, our dismal failures as well as our proud successes. Um, See, without his grace, there are only two possibilities. Our our guilt and our fear and our anguish would crush us, uh, leading us to a lack of hope. That's the first thing. Uh, That's one option. But the other option is we have to live a life of denial. Uh, we have to deny that we're sinners. We have to deny that we're fundamentally evil in our thinking and, and our attitudes and behaviours. Um, and that will lead us to a very untrue sense of identity and meaning and purpose. And that also leads to a lack of hope. So without grace, there's no hope. Um, there just isn't. You know, we're surrounded in our world by conditionality. Um, We live in a world of limited, conditional love. I can remember going to a wedding in uh, in Indonesia um, and there was a... uh, Actually, it was one of our ex-students who was getting married and the, the pastor during the wedding service said, um, you know, that you're going to remain together as long as you both shall love. I thought, oh, he's he's made an error. (laughs) So I went up to him afterwards and I said, I think you you probably made a bit of a mistake there. Shouldn't it be as long as you both shall live? He says, no, I know what I was talking about. 
Now, it might not surprise you to know that those two people are now divorced. <laughs> that it wasn't caused by that. But what, a, what an aberrant way of putting things. As, as long as you both show love. In other words, it's conditional. Um, and, and this was a Christian pastor who was saying this. Um, but God says to his people, I love you. And what he means by that is that's a never-ending covenant love. Whereas what we say to people is, well, I love you because. I love you because something. So it's your love is earned. And if you, if you, if you don't fulfill that requirement, then maybe I withdraw that love. Or I love you until. In other words, there are limits on, on how I love you. Or I love you unless. And so there are conditions. Um, so we live in this world, right? Um, of conditionality. And our hope is linked with the grace of God. If, if God were not a gracious God, I mean, that's impossible, but if he were not a gracious God, genuine hope would be impossible because um, we could only trust in our own willpower, our own positive thinking or our own ability. And they are such faulty things, Right? Um, you know, if I had to trust in those things, which at some point in my life I thought I could, um, there is no hope. The basis of hope becomes either conditional or fatalistic, and neither of those things are good. You know, we must do all the right things to secure our hope, or we cross our fingers and hope uh, that hope comes. There can be no certainty, and when hope lacks certainty life becomes hopeless. Um, I told a couple of stories last week, and um, let me just tell another couple, and I I won't give you all the details so that people are not able to be identified. But I've been engaged in some regular conversations with a a young man uh, for a number of years, and he's um, an incredibly passionate young man. Whatever he does... He does with as much energy as he can muster. Uh, He's totally passionate. And so during the period that I've been having these discussions with him, he spent numerous periods of his life as an excited witness to who Jesus is. Uh, And he's also, though, had several periods in life where he's been in the depths of sadness and anger and hopelessness and has descended into drug abuse and alcoholism. Everything he does, he does with full energy. And so when he's in his I'm passionate for Jesus mode, it's full energy. When he's in his drugs and alcohol mode, it's full engagement. And some of those periods have have brought him close to death. He's he's found himself begging on the streets for drug money. He's found himself in hospital emergency centres close to death as a consequence of his drug abuse. And in one of our recent conversations, um, after he'd spent probably three, four months in rehab and counselling, 
he recognised that his life was full of fears and doubts. He had a confused identity, unclear meaning, unclear purpose. Uh, He never really knows who he is and what he's meant to be doing, how he's meant to live. And when he turns back to Jesus, which he's done three or four times now, instead of feeling loved, he condemns himself for his own unworthiness. And, And in his words, he says, I've let God down again. And you know, his passion, no matter whether it's his passion for Christ or his passion for whatever, his passion is never going to bring him peace. That's not what's going to bring him peace. Let me leave him there for a moment. We'll come back to it. Another person that I have something to do with, um, he's just gone through a relational breakdown, a marriage breakdown. And his thinking is this, he says, God gave me free will, I chose to marry my wife, I've made the wrong choices, so he won't help me now because I've abused the free will that he gave me. And so I must live with the fact that I did it wrong and be abandoned. No peace there either, right? So in either of those cases, no peace. And the sobering thing is we can all lose sight of God's grace and mercy. And when we, when we do that, we try and wrestle back control of our lives and we fall into the trap that we are good people uh, who somehow earned our righteousness um, and now we find ourselves in this difficulty. Maybe we don't get to the point where we're involved in drug and alcohol abuse. Um, and the total loss of dignity that that brings. But maybe we just end up inventing excuses for why things go the way they do, um, or hiding the reality or living a double life. And, uh, yeah, band-aids won't cut it, right? Um, the, the The only thing that's going to deal with those issues is knowing the grace of God which brings us peace. In our Bible reading, we often skip the, the beginnings of, uh, of Bible books, and particularly when it comes to pastoral letters. We often skip the introductions to letters. But interestingly, if, if you spent five minutes having a look at um, how each one of Paul's letters begins... They all begin the same way. And they all begin by Paul saying, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Or or more frequently, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Always the same order. It's never peace to you and grace. It's always grace to you and peace. Because without grace, there is no peace. That's the point. It's always relating to the person of Jesus who is our only hope. And without grace, peace is conditional and cannot relieve guilt or anxiety. See, if we don't know grace, we cannot know peace. If, if our peace is reliant upon our behaviour, upon uh, the things that we do, we're always going to make a mess of it. 
And therefore, every time we make a mess of it, we lose our peace. So unless we understand that our peace comes through the grace of God and nothing else, the grace of God, which is secure and, and, and firm, uh, we will know no peace. And so those two examples that I talked about, unless those two people can understand the grace of God, they're on a vain search for peace. They're never going to find it. So every one of Paul's letters starts with grace and peace to you. No grace first, then you will know peace. And then every one of his letters ends in an interesting way. He says, grace be with you. In other words, uh, grace and peace to you as you read this letter and grace be with you as you stop reading this letter and you go out and live. It's worth, worth checking. Just check out the beginnings of those letters. And Peter does the same sort of thing. Um, Peter affirms this truth. This is in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. And in 1 Timothy, Paul's writing, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What wonderful words they are. Grace, mercy, peace and hope. Grace, mercy, peace and hope. Just fabulous words. And we are privileged by the grace of God to know what they mean. And, and the historical context, if, if we go into that, Paul was living in the time of Roman rule. And the period of that Roman rule is called Pax Romana, the peace of the Romans, the peace of the Roman Empire. But the way that that Pax Romana, Romana was, was established was by, by a harsh authority. Basically, the, the Roman Empire said, we will bring peace to our nation by oppressing people, by making sure that nothing untoward happens. And how will we stop those things from happening? By harshly disciplining. That's the only other alternative to grace, is a harsh authoritarianism. And so it was peace through power, basically. Whereas we're talking about peace through grace. And if we compare what sort of peace there is in our present society, don't want to go there for too long, but um, it's interesting to see just how many commissions and authorities that we have in our society that attempt to bring peace. And so we have equal opportunity commissions and gender equality commissions and marriage equality and human rights commissions and transgender rights and all of these things that are legalistically imposed with the hope of bringing peace to people's lives. Now, some of those things do deal with injustice. But it's not the way for us to understand peace. So one of the things that Paul is saying is that Pax Romana was not real peace. Peace doesn't come from authoritarian dominance, nor from regulations. Real peace is only found in the grace of God. 
And so it's not peace and grace, but it's grace and peace. A lack of peace is a lack of assurance, a lack of security, a a lack of hope, a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose, and an uncertainty of identity. And we cannot find those things in ourselves. Can't be done. A lack of peace comes from worrying about what might happen. It might be a fear about the future. It may be a worry about a relationship. It might be an anxiety about a failure or fear of not measuring up. All those things have the potential to take away our peace unless we know the grace of God. And without that grace, we have no peace, we have no hope, uh, our guilt is unresolved, uh, our anger comes to the surface, we are despairing, um, and all of those things cause us to behave irrationally as people who don't have hope. See, sin is so serious and so deep um, that only God can deal with it. And he does. We simply don't have the capacity or the ability. And so God's mercy comes first of all. And God's mercy removes the pollution and penalty and power of sin. And grace changes us, renews us, makes us to be Christ-like. So what we sang in uh, Amazing Grace, that it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So grace redeems our failures, but grace also redeems our past successes. And if we look at Paul's life, it's quite fascinating. Uh, We see uh, two aspects to Paul. Number one, his progress without the light without that Damascus Road experience, and then his progress with the light when he sees who Christ really is. And by any assessment, um, Paul is a successful person in worldly terms. He's, He's knowledgeable, he's intelligent, he's influential, he's articulate, he's all these things. And if we look at his CV that he thought he had, it's in Philippians 3, uh, verses 4 through 6. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Touch of arrogance there, right? (laughs) Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, the thing is, all of those things were true. He's not lying. He's not not, uh, setting himself up as something that he's not. All of those things are true. He was an Israelite, tribe of Benjamin, Circumcised on the eighth day, highly educated, influential, Hebrew of the Hebrews, zealous, faultlessly obedient to all the laws. But then, his eyes are opened by being caused to be blind. That's a wonderful irony, isn't it? That, that he has to have his eyes shut on his previous life so the eyes can be opened on the truth. Um, and now his CV reads completely differently and he, he 
talks about who he actually is now. And he starts off in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he's brought to humility and sees himself as, as he actually is. And these things are in chronological order. He then goes to Ephesians 3, verse 8, and says, I am less than the least of all God's people. And then in 1 Timothy 1, he says, I am the worst of sinners. See, he, he gains a, a whole new identity. But question... Was he more peaceful before his Damascus Road experience or after his Damascus Road experience? It's after, right? He's now at peace because he's understood the grace of God. He had to maintain all those other things. He had to maintain his authority, had to maintain his zeal, had to zealously persecute people. But now he's brought to an understanding that all he has is by the grace of God. And so grace determines identity and meaning and purpose. And let's expand on one of the statements that Paul made in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am. See, we, we should be able to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it's not being proud of that, but, but experiencing peace in that. I am what I am by the grace of God. God has opened my eyes to the truth of who he is. I have meaning, I have identity, I have purpose. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, he's saying here, because I understood the grace of God, doesn't mean I stopped making any effort. I worked harder as a consequence. Because now I see clearly what my identity and meaning and purpose is. Right? So I worked harder than I did before. And so Paul's identity becomes he's a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle by the will of God. That's the most common introduction to each of his letters. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am an apostle not because I earned it, but by grace. I am the least of, of people. I'm the biggest sinner by grace. I'm unworthy by grace. I'm redeemed by grace. I'm enabled by grace. Now we get that in terms of Paul's transformation. But let me go a little bit deeper. Let's have a look at two other passages. First in Galatians 1. Galatians 1 verse 15, 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Get that? So Paul, this plan for Paul was determined by God before Paul was born. 
when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And we can go on and read the rest of that passage, but let me just pick out those parts. So the plan that God had for Paul was determined before Paul was born, right? And the plan that God revealed to Paul was by the grace of God. What was that plan? That he would know that all that he was was by the grace of God and that his purpose was to preach the truth of God to the Gentiles. Now, this was a person who said, I'm a proud Israelite, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And what's his purpose? To go and preach to the Gentiles. Totally different, right? Only God could cause that to happen. And it was always God's intention that that happened. So my point is, the grace of God did not come to Paul on the Damascus Road. The grace of God was constantly working in Paul's life before he was born. How securing is that? You know, what if I'd missed the Damascus Road experience? What if I didn't go on that walk on the Damascus Road that day? Would I have not known God? You know, that's anxiety, not peace, right? And then in First Timothy we find, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and that's, he's not saying that as an excuse, but a confession, right? There's a big difference between those two things. I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, if God can take somebody as arrogant as me, as set in their ways as me, as self-important as me, as proud as me, he can change you too. How good is that? In other words, Paul is saying there was purpose in why I was such an arrogant, abusive idiot. It was to show that God can change anybody. And that should be an immense encouragement to us that that's what happened. He says, I did not deserve mercy and grace. I was the foremost sinner. God's grace to me shows to the world that salvation is grace and nothing else. Grace is directly linked to the sovereignty of God. And we need to see that grace is being poured into our lives every moment of every day. Every day we fail and we need the grace of God. And grace makes us what we are. 
And we can look back over our lives. I can look back over my life. My, the first 16, 17 years of my life were an interesting mixture. I went to a, a primary school in a small village in the UK and life was adorable. Absolutely fabulous. Um, it's, you know, I, I had no idea that cities existed. <laughs> I lived in a little country area, went to a small country school. Life was idyllic. And then at the age of 11, I did what a lot of young people in the UK did. I, I passed the 11 plus exam. I had no idea what that was at the time. And it meant that I went to a grammar school. Now, this grammar school was um, three bus trips away from my home. My parents were very poor people. My father was a farm labourer. Um, we didn't have a lot of income, but this was a great joy for my parents that I'd been selected to go to this grammar school. It was hell for me. I hated it. I hated it because all the people who went to the school were doctors, sons and daughters of doctors and lawyers and, and very affluent people. And I was the son of a farm labourer who had to wear a second-hand school uniform who always arrived late at school because I had to catch three buses and I had to walk one of the legs of that, that journey because my parents could not afford the bus fares. I could tell you stories galore. But I look back at that now with no regret because I saw, I see now God working in my life. I hated those seven years of high school. And do you know what that's done for me? It's made me sensitive to young people in schools who are outcasts, who don't fit in. There's always purpose in what God does. And when we see that, it brings us peace, you see, doesn't it? And, and so the grace of God is working even in those situations where we think, I don't like this. <laughs> it's not pleasant. It hurts, you know. Uh, and we could talk about all sorts of biblical characters. Let me go to the third point. Grace enables discipline and commitment and service and best effort and so on. So, again, we go back to 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, says Paul, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace is never in vain. If we know that we are saved, forgiven, have eternal security, then if we spent our life in a hammock, that would be grace in vain. If we simply said, oh, fine, I'm heaven-bound, no problem. Right? Grace does not replace work, it enables it. Say that again. Grace does not replace work, it enables it. None of our works earn or add to our salvation, but grace motivates and produces work. Have a look at First Thessalonians 1, and verses uh, 2 through 5. Somebody want to read that for me? Somebody on the front row so we can pick you up on the microphone. One Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 5. 
big voice. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brethren, beloved of God, that he has chosen you. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Yeah. Aren't they such strong words, right? Um, and so he talks about, Paul talks about your work of faith. Every single thing we do is a consequence of faith of some sort, right? We may work because we placed faith in money, so we work for income, right? Everything anybody ever does is done because of faith in something. But Paul is saying we, we, we understand your work of faith. Then he goes up a next step and says we move from work to labour. Labour is a more intense sense of work, right? And when we labour, we labour out of love. And, and that's a bigger motivation. Um, and then we get to the third one, and your steadfastness, your never giving upness of hope. And that hope is determined by understanding grace. So you see how grace does not stop us from working, it motivates us, gives us a new motivation for work, a work of faith, a labour of love and steadfastness of hope as we understand the grace of God. See, when we're flooded with grace, we will overflow with effort. Not an effort that earns, but an effort that responds. Uh, It's very different. And Paul says that, not I, but the grace of God. And grace does not kick-start our work and we continue. No, grace starts and grace continues. And we could talk about um, more of what that means, but we're going to run out of time. Augustine says this, For grace is given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. It's very different, isn't it? Grace is given not because we have done good works, we didn't earn grace, but in order that we may be able to do good works. Okay, lastly, last point, grace causes our obedience and enables us to fight sin. Has this been a bit intense this morning? No, we're we're going okay, we're travelling well, that's good. So let's give Paul a rest and let's have a look at 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way 
in which he walked. Now, if we don't understand the context of that, we can feel overpowered by that. Because basically it says, um, if you carry on sinning, you don't know God. Hmm. There's several parts to that passage. Number one, he says, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. In other words, we, we know what sin is now. And sin is, you know, there's a difference between what sin is and the outcomes of sin. The outcomes of sin are things like uh, murder and theft and adultery and so on. They're the outcomes of sin, right? Because sin is rejecting the authority of God. There's really only one sin, right? And that's rejecting the authority of God. So what he's saying is that we now know the authority of God. We have come to be reconciled with God. In other words, we cannot not recognise sin. Do you follow? Um, sometimes we'll still be tempted to do those sinful acts. And the context of what, what John is writing to here is that he's writing because in the church at that time there were a lot of deceptive people a lot of people who were claiming wrong things. And so he was writing this as a warning against deceivers. And so down in verse uh, 1 John chapter 3, let's add to this story. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. See? Um, we, we, We know because of the Christ who indwells us when we are thinking behaving, contemplating sin. We know. We may not have known before, um, but we now know. Little children, let no one deceive you. So he's talking about deceivers. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, in other words, spot the deceivers amongst you, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let me take you back to last week where we talked about we are being what? Transformed from one degree of glory to another. I gave you a couple of examples of, of people where that is occurring. That's true for you and me. We are not yet Christ-like. We are being transformed to be Christ-like. Uh, but what grace does, because that grace points to the indwelling Christ in us, we know what sin is. Now, sometimes we spot it more easily than in others than we do in ourselves, right? But the truth is, we know. Um, And part of being the body of Christ is admitting that to one another. Not from the point of view, 
of being condemned, but from the point of view of being encouraged to overcome that by the grace of God. So if we abide in him, sin cannot continue to abide in us, not um, not um, persistently. Grace fights sin. If Christ is in us, there is an inner conflict for us uh, when sin comes along in its tempting way, which it does every single day. Right? Grace is not simply leniency when we've sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of the power of God not to sin. And so grace is power as well as pardon. Grace is power as well as pardon. I think we've got to stop there because I've gone well beyond what I should have done. But uh, Randy Olcon says this, let me finish on this quote. Living by grace means affirming daily our unworthiness. We are never thankful for what we think we deserve. We are deeply thankful for what we know we don't deserve. Let's pray. Now, Father, your, your word and your wisdom are so incredibly rich that we cannot do justice. But Lord, by your spirit, we pray that you will take your word and your truth and your grace and your goodness and let it invade our minds and our hearts and our lives so that we may understand what a good and gracious God you are. And understanding that, Lord, may we seek to be those people that you are forming us to be. So give us uh, uh, an understanding of your grace and an understanding of how we should live and relate um, and simply worship and adore you in the way that we live and relate. We ask that in Jesus' name.